You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Sunday, September 1st, 2019, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. Evan Bernstein. What's up, Dragon Con? And our brother from down under, Richard Saunders. Hello. Thank you guys for joining me. We're at DragonCon 2019. This is one of our uh, most fun shows every year because we get to be at DragonCon. The audience is filled with people in awesome costumes. We're having a lot of fun. I just always love this episode. You guys having a good time? No. <laughs> of course. How can you not have fun at DragonCon? Like we, we, you know, I don't want to talk about other conferences, but we go to other conferences. And nothing, <laughs> nothing compares to DragonCon because when you're not talking, there's so much to freaking do. I spent $200 yesterday on dice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. It's a different shade of green. I got to have it. <laughs> this is also the only episode that we do in full Star Trek regalia. Yes. Which... When do you get a chance? When do you get a chance? Um, actually, we all, when we're recording at home in our, in our offices, we're wearing Star Trek in. Um, you just Wait, don't. I, you just don't I, know, I was never told we needed to do that. <laughs> no, you don't need right. to. Get with the program, Bob. It, the option is there. So we, we have an hour. We have a lot of great news items. We're going to get right to it. Today, September 1st, also happens to be the anniversary of the Carrington event you guys remember the Carrington event, don't sure, you? Of course, of course you don't. Yeah, we were all around. So <laughs> September 1st to 2nd, depending on what part of the world you're in. In Australia, it was September 2nd. Yeah, right? we're always ahead. So you Just celebrate. Your that. big Carrington <laughs> celebration is on the 2nd. Yeah, right. yeah, so it was September 1st or 2nd, 1859, so 160 years ago today. Happy birthday. Yep. The Earth was just walloped with a, with a CMA, a coronal mass ejection, a, uh, a storm of ions from the sun, and our newly installed telegraph infrastructure was fried by that CME. Uh, there was a lot of damage done. Of course, now imagine what would happen if a similar thing hit us today. We have slightly more electric infrastructure than we did in 1859. Yeah, but we're prepared, Steve. I mean, yeah. people, people are aware that these things can happen, and they go, we can't build an electrical grid without preparing it for a natural disaster. I mean, you would imagine that the governments of the world, especially like wealthy Western governments, would harden the, the electrical grid against a Carrington-like Yeah, but event. Steve, it's like, so a super, it's like a super volcano eruption. It's like 10,000 years before we're going to see something like this, right? It's not imminent or yeah, anything. But that is, but well, Bob, that's just statistics, though. I mean, it could happen right well, now. Well, Bob is being no, sarcastic I'm because... Being very sarcastic. Yeah, because this is actually the, the kind of thing that happens every, I don't know, 100 years or so. And so we're overdue by 60 years? Sort of, yeah. So it's, it, you know, they're random events. Um, but this is the kind of thing that happens on a regular basis on a, you know, every century or so or two centuries. Not every million years, not every couple of thousand years. So this is like the one thing that could plausibly happen in our lifetimes. And we're also being sarcastic because our government is doing nothing about hardening our 
our electrical infrastructure. They're, they don't have backup transformers. They don't, you know, they're, they're not preventing, they're not hardening the grid itself. So, Steve, uh, if McDonald's can harden our arteries, the government <laughs> can harden our grid. <laughs> but if, a, if this type of a Carrington-like event hit us directly, it's quite plausible that, like, we wouldn't fully restore power for years. How Think would you listen that. to the show? Yeah, I know. We could. I mean, like, like a tragedy. We would go dark. Like, there would be no SGU for months or years. I mean, that's you know, that's putting a nice icing on top. <laughs> it wouldn't be years. It would probably be. De- it would probably be into the decades yeah. before well, we before we had full recovery. But I mean, this would uh, affect the whole planet. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. In fact, in 2012, there was a near miss. Nine days, we 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 got by and just missed a Carrington-like mm-hmm. event. They did a, a cost analysis of it at the time, back in 2013, uh, in which in the United States alone, upward estimates of the amount of damage measured in dollars, $2.6 trillion. And that's probably an underestimate. Yeah. Probably. Right? I mean, that's the things they could think of. But, and that's not including a lot of the downstream consequences. You know, that's... It's always worse than, than you think. It probably, probably double that is probably a better estimate. So it's going to be trillions of dollars is what it's going to cost. Um, so you would think it would be worth investing billions of dollars to prevent that from happening. Is there, now, if, you're, if your device isn't on, is it safe? No. It's, not, it's more about the size of the device. And rather, you're it's, saying that size matters? Yeah, it does matter. <laughs> so I keep hearing this. I don't, I don't like what I'm hearing. Um, yeah, it would take a pretty big event to, like, fry your, your iPad, you know. But, again, like, the, the grid, we're literally sending wires across the country. That would definitely be affected. Yeah. You know? And that, that gets affected even by much lesser uh, episodes. And also our satellite, we have quite a few satellites up there. Yeah. So it's not just no electricity. It's, like, no GPS, like, no satellites, no communication satellites. They're, they're gone. Because they would, they would also be fried as well. So, anyway, happy anniversary to the Carrington event. <laughs> <laughs> we'll look forward to the next one. Uh, so, Evan. Yeah. So, we, we, I think we briefly mentioned this before. We didn't really do a deep dive on this. So, these people are planning to storm Area 51. Tell us what's the update on this. Is this oh. really going to happen? Uh, maybe. <laughs> we'll, we, we shall see in a few weeks. Excuse me. I'm allergic to Retinax 5, so I, I need to, uh, you know, put on. Yes. In a few weeks, there is going to be a gathering of people just outside of uh, Area 51, in which they're calling it it's basically Alien Fest. You know, they celebrate, you know, UFOs and, these, and this sort of culture and phenomenon. And each year it happens, but this year is going to be a little bit different, and all thanks to this one silly post and Facebook page that went up, Storm Area 51, where it says, we will all meet up in rural Nevada and coordinate our parties. If we Naruto run, we can move faster than their bullets. Let's see them aliens. So, you may have remembered this. Evan, can you demonstrate a Naruto run I actually for us? cannot, but I, you want me to... Can somebody in the audience who's not wired with mics demonstrate for us a Naruto Anyone? run? No, no if, takers. If anybody does it, I'll give you a oh, sticker. Here we go. There you go. Hey. Yes. All right. Oh, wow. <laughs> the best. Wow. Now, I don't know about you guys. She not only looked like she was running faster, she ran faster. Yeah. <laughs> no bullets would ever, no bullets. ever. They didn't get her. <laughs> and she wasn't shot. It works. Yeah. Uh, right, so they're going to Naruto right. run to Area 51. Right. So what is, what is this all about? Well, we have maybe perhaps Joe Rogan to thank for this because not long ago, back in June, he had on the Joe Rogan experience uh, Bob Lazar, who is a, you know, 
alien UFO enthusiast, and there's a documentary going to be coming out. I don't know if it's out yet on Netflix. I haven't seen it. Um, and he had him on for an interview. So in response to that interview, a, a college student, his name is uh, Matty Roberts, 20-year-old college student, he decided to, as just a little joke, he's going to post this event uh, using Facebook and put that in as the descriptor. You know, in a couple days, he had about 40 people who were either interested or, quote-unquote, going to the event, and not a few weeks later, as many as uh, 2 million uh, people on Facebook decided that they were either going to be going to or were interested in the event. Uh, okay, so, haha, a lot of fun, <laughs> real funny here, but uh, it's turning into a real problem. Because what is happening is that because this is coming up in just a couple of weeks, the, uh, lo- the, the local towns, the local counties near Area 51 are bracing for a convergence like they've never seen before. They anticipate tens of thousands, maybe 100,000 or more people that are going to be converging in these areas, which are only capable of taking care of a few hundred, maybe a few, maybe a thousand people at most. They don't have the water. They don't have toilets. They don't have enough food. They certainly don't have enough, you know, security, police force, fire, ambulances to deal with this amount of people that are coming into these areas. Yeah, so you have to is, like plan events like this. You can't just say, "Hey, hundred thousand people converge on this spot." And, you know, it doesn't work. So the news behind this is is that just the other day, um, a second county, a few a few weeks ago, one of the counties declared an emerge an, an, an emergency that's going to be happening. And now a second county has also now declared an emergency, a neighboring county, because of the overflow of people that they're going to have coming in. They just cannot handle it. They don't know what to do. So they're putting it out as a statewide crisis. Now, Evan, I love the fact that when this thing first occurred, you know, when, when millions of people started signing up for Storm Area 51, the, the people at Area 51 were like, um, this is a hardened military base, <laughs> yeah. and we shoot people who trespass onto our base, so yeah. don't do that. Right. Um, do, not, do not infiltrate a secure, maximally secured, milita- right. secret military base. We shoot people for that. Yeah. They, had to, they had to remind people. And they're probably that. hardened against CMEs as well. The one place in the, in the world you're going to go, you would probably be safest there for a Carrington-like event. They put that message out there, Ev. And a hundred and some odd thousand people don't care. They don't <laughs> like care. They're still going. <laughs> and and even though people are going to co- co- go there and do their celebration and you know camp out and do whatever it is they're going to do, okay. When you get a hundred thousand people of any you know flavor or variety, you know that some of them are probably going to be a little less stable than others. And and I would anticipate there are going to be more than a handful of people. Yeah, who just are look at Dragon Con, right? Who are actually going to try to breach the barrier. Wow. Just one person got that joke. Thank you. <laughs> you told me something surprising, Evan. How big is Area 51? Uh, roughly the size in square, in, in square miles of the state of Connecticut. That's the actual geographic area. Now, obviously, they're not utilizing all of that. Most of it is just barren desert brush. That's, yeah. about, that's about it. Like you could do things that are like explode nuclear bombs or test secret military aircraft. Fly, air, fly aircraft and jets yeah. everywhere that you know, they need to go without being you know, so, so easily spotted. Well, I mean, is anyone really thinking, though, that anybody is taking any of this seriously? Like, are they really going to... I think that happened. Well, the, the people protecting Area 51 are taking it extremely yeah, seriously, and they're issuing warnings almost daily to remind them, do not do this, do not do this, do not cross our border, do not come in here. 
it's it's going to get we ugly. really mean it's it. going to get yeah. ugly is what is what they said but, so but, no guarantee for your safety if you cross over that line but you're right jay we don't know the the whole thing started as a goof right this was a joke that somebody put out there in the in the interwebs and got way out of their control almost immediately, mm-hmm. right? And they were, this, this guy was interviewed. He was like, I didn't expect this to happen. This was just a joke, you know? I was just trying to increase the likes on my Facebook page. That's literally what he said. Well, it worked. Yeah. But and now it's taken on a life of its own because he tapped into something. Because I think there's a lot of you know, UFO believers out there like, yeah, if we storm, if like all of us storm Area 51, they can't shoot all of us. And some of us will get in there. We'll see the UFOs. I know, but we'll get it out there. There's a part of me that doesn't believe that. I think everyone's right. There's going to, I'm sure there's a lot of people for whom it's a joke. For a lot of people, it's going to be a festival. And for some people, they're festival. like, festival. <laughs> they're, they really want to, they want to take down the man and expose the aliens. They really, this is like their one chance to do it. Like, this is a great idea. Why didn't we think of this before? But, I mean, do they actually think, though, that they're going to storm, like, jump the fence and crack open a hangar, and there's going to be, like, well, men dragging <laughs> naked alien bodies out of <laughs> UFOs? Well, Jay, well, we talked about this a little bit earlier, Jay. I mean, when you have something that's the size of the state of Connecticut, you're obviously not patrolling the entire border at all times. I'm sure there's inner perimeters that you would have to otherwise get through to get to something that's secret or sensitive. But, I mean, once you are over that and they do, and they do find you, I mean, you're, you are taking your life in your hands. You're going to at least get detained. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if they feel that you're a threat, they're going to shoot first probably and ask questions later perhaps. Who knows what, yeah. they, what they will do? But at least they know it's coming in a sense. You'll hope that they'll use restraint in case some people with these desires can, can, can make their way. I really doubt that they'll get anywhere uh, even close to anything. Well, sensitive. I mean, it's a powder keg. Imagine a typical you know, military grunt armed with an automatic weapon who's guarding Area 51, who's probably never had to fire their weapon in anger ever. And now 100,000 people are running at them. They, like the, the whole point is to overwhelm the defenses of the base. If enough that. people are doing that, it, it's plausible regardless of what their instructions are, that you know, one or more of, of these, these kids can panic and start shooting people, you know? This is, which would be a terrible situation, a terrible tragedy. The people are like X-Wings storming the Death Star because it wasn't designed to, to defend right. against them. <laughs> <laughs> the Look for the exhaust chute. And yeah. find the floor. That's yeah. right. But if they Naruto run, won't they just run right past the guy with the gun? Well, that's the point. <laughs> Yeah, that's the point. That's the you idea. Spray bullets. You know, they can't get everyone. Steve, yeah. is, anyone, is anyone saying that, hey, maybe this is a conspiracy theory to get all the UFO nuts <laughs> in one place? <laughs> <laughs> and then, wait, where'd they go? I don't know. They never showed up. Come man, on. Man, Bob, I like the up. way you think, man. That was, that was good. You would, <laughs> you would think the idea of harboring aliens in, alien, in Area 51 is just so outdated and yeah. archaic, but it's not. There are still so many people who really, truly believe it. Yeah, and there, there are Photoshop pictures of flying saucers in hangars at Area 51. People are like, there you go. There's yeah. a flying saucer. But it's not, it's not just in this country. In Australia, we have our own secret area. It's right in the center of the country near the uh, city of Alice Springs. It's called Pine Gap. Pine Gap is a joint U.S.-Australian facility. It's a secret facility. As far as I can possibly know, and as far as the general population knows, it's for monitoring satellite chatter, picking up things, sending intelligence to Canberra or to Washington or to both. Did you say a joint U.S.-Alien facility? Did I say a joint U.S.-Alien or a joint U.S.-Australian? Okay, I misheard you. Sorry. That would have been a good Freudian So where is it? Is this, is this near... Um... It's in the center of the country. It's not far from Uluru or Ayers Rock, the big uh, uh, rock in so the center of the country. It's in the middle of the desert. 
It's in the middle of the yeah. desert, but it's near the town of Alice Springs, which is a, quite a substantial town. So there have been rumors of people trying to penetrate Pine Gap because there are certain Australian UFO believers who think that that's the place in the world that the government, the US government, are breeding aliens in the middle of Australia. Of course it all makes sense. That's where you'd go. Now, when you say breeding aliens... Yeah, just wait. (laughs) It gets better. So uh, about four years ago, I went to a paranormal conference, and one of the the, the, uh, speakers was talking about uh, alien abductions and so on and so forth. And these are the points they made. There has been a 17-year truth embargo by the U.S. government on alien matters. There are new human hybrids on the planet. One is called Mia. So if you find Mia, let me know. Now, remember, this is a few years ago. President Obama, as one of his last acts in office, will disclose the truth about UFOs. President Clinton, as one of her first acts in office, (laughs) will disclose the truth about UFOs. So on and so forth. Uh, Aliens known as greys, think of the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind, are here to make alien-human hybrids, which are also vegetarian. That's good to know. Vegetarian or vegan? Ooh, that's a good point. Yeah. They said, they said vegetarian. They said, and, this is, and people accuse us of, of um, uh, making stuff up about uh, the UFO crowd and all sorts of things. I'm not making this up. This is exactly what they said. There is a secret base at Pine Gap. And at this base, they, the government, are creating clone alien robots that can abduct humans. Rob- clone alien robots. Clone Alien robots, the so three in one. That's like the mutant teenage ninja turtles. When you a clone, a clone. Okay, so wait, let's 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 reverse engineer this. A clone. Yes. Now a clone of an alien, presumably. It's a it's a clone of an alien that has become robotic. So isn't that a cyborg? Is it? But if, it, but if it's a clone, you're implying the DNA of some kind or some type of genetic material. Yeah, it really should be a clone alien cyborg. cyborg. I, think I, we, I think we could all agree on that, right? right. <laughs> it's a clone alien cyborg, okay? I think you're overthinking this. <laughs> I, no, I think, Richard, I think that you're missing out on a book opportunity. I think you're right. And... Uh, it was funny. Now I remembered, of course, there was about four speakers on the stage, and each one would come up with a point, and then each one would try to outdo it, and each one would try to outdo it. I, I, it was a, the best show in town, as far as I'm concerned. But the point is that they said that they knew people who tried to sneak into Pine Gap to find out the truth, which is exactly this sort of thinking. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. They, they did it one at a time. That was they, their problem. One at a time. That was their mistake. They didn't storm it. Speaking of storms, uh, oh, we boy. are... Facing down the barrel of Hurricane Dorian, uh, it's a Category 5 hurricane. You should all panic because it's heading our way. No, it's not. It's so it's, it's in the Atlantic, and it's heading uh, towards the Bahamas. So it's, going, it's hitting the Bahamas. It's hitting the Bahamas. And it's the, it's the strongest hurricane ever recorded to hit the Bahamas. It's the second most powerful hurricane recorded in the Atlantic. So it's, it's strong. It's powerful. So what you're, what you're seeing on screen is the projected pathways of the hurricane. It basically swooping up the eastern coast of the United States from Florida, Georgia, and on upwards. We'll probably feel some of that in Atlanta. I'm hoping it's not going to keep me from flying home. 
Yeah. Uh, now, there's on one, one scientist, if you look at the image, yeah. there's one lone scientist who thinks it's going to go back out to sea. Yeah. <laughs> and one guy who thinks it's going to go across right. Florida. Yeah. yeah like one, everybody else is like, forget the eastern seaboard. <laughs> yeah. He will be a hero celebrity if that's, that's the right. actual yeah. path that it takes. Right. You'll know his name. Right, that's right. So, yeah, so this, you know, we talk about whenever a big storm comes up now, like, what's the relationship between this and global warming? And the answer is we don't know, right? You can't make a statement about an individual storm. We can only speak statistically. And also, the other point that we we often have to clarify, because we got this wrong initially, too, is that the increasing temperatures that we're seeing, average temperatures with global warming, don't cause more hurricanes. They just make the hurricanes that occur more powerful. So you're like that aliens guy with the weird hair. I'm not saying it's global warming, but it's global warming. Global warming. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, but it's true, you know, that because there's more, more energy, more heat in the ocean, uh, hurricanes pick up power as they go over the ocean. They're picking up all that heat energy from the ocean. Then they, they deliver that energy to, to the land as they make landfall. Then they might go back out and they pick up energy again. And then they, so they're kind of going up and down in their energy. And so warmer planet, warmer ocean, more powerful hurricanes. Yeah. Uh, and we are statistically seeing more frequent, powerful hurricanes. Would, would we have seen Dorian? Would it have been a Category 4, not, not a Category 5, were it not for global warming? Again, it's, it's chaos. You can't predict the end of, at the weather level. Um, but statistically, we're going to see more storms like this. Yeah. I think that's the bottom line. They're called typhoons, I think, in Australia, right, Richard? Uh, cyclones. 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 Cyclones, yeah. So a cyclone is a, is, is a hurricane. Yeah, it's yeah. more or less the same thing. It's yeah. not good. It, just, it all depends on the uh, you know, north or south of the, uh, I think it's right? The southern hemisphere, it has a different name. Right, tornadoes have different names in the southern hemisphere right. as well. Right, but they do not spin in different directions. They're called tornadoes. Tornadoes are different than... What? The, no, you said the tornadoes are called diff- something different. Isn't it? I thought that every storm had a different name in One, the southern Jim, hemisphere. Jim, Bruce, Harry. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Here comes Fred again. Well, you, do call, you, do, you guys do call, like, a heated sandwich, like a panini, a toasty. Yeah, and? You have a different name for something now. For everything. We were talking about this, this piece earlier, and I pointed out to or somebody asked, is it really true that they, all hurricanes were named after women be, you know, before a certain time? Like, yeah, that's true. The, the protocol was they all had to be female two-syllable names. And then either you could take your pick. Either somebody realized that that was sexist, or they ran out of names. And then so they said, we have to expand our, our options here a little bit. So then they started you know, going back between female and male names, and then they also expanded it to more than two syllables. That's why we have Katrina, right, three syllables. But there was a time, like when we were younger, it was all two-syllable female names. The, the, the most famous um, cyclone in Australia hit the city of Darwin on Christmas Day, 1974, and just devastated Darwin was called Cyclone Tracy. Tracy, yep, fit the pattern. All right, but my question to you, Bob, is could we prevent, prevent this hurricane from making landfall if we nuke it? <laughs> Nuclear combat, toe-toe with the hurricane. That, that actor, Slim Pickens, yeah. had the, arguably the best line in any movie ever. Like, he had the best line. Now, who remembers 1941? 1941. He gets captured. He gets captured by a what was it? A Japanese submarine. submarine. And he had a uh, popcorn box, you know, like the uh, what you call it, the caramel popcorn. Little compass prize. And there was a little compass in there. 
And they were going through his stuff, his, the, the popcorn, and they're going through, and they find the compass, and he grabs it, and, and he swallows needed it. it. They and they needed, needed the compass, because the, the submarine's compass broke, and they needed it. So they start pouring, like, stuff down his throat to make him poop it out, right? And they're like, you see him, like, his pants are half on, and at some point he goes, you ain't getting shit out of me! Like that. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, shit my, out I was, like, six years old when I saw that, and that was the funniest thing I had ever seen. <laughs> yeah, that, that was, like, the only funny part of that movie, yeah. by the way. <laughs> he was much better in uh, Doctor Strange. Yeah, well, he was great yeah. in that movie, yeah, oh, of course. Yeah, really. So, yeah, people are talking about, can we just nuke, nuke this? Well, not a lot of people. Some specific people are talking about it. And uh, <laughs> one specific yeah, it's not, I mean, it's not a new idea. I mean, scientists in the 50s, uh, for example, Jack Reed from the Sandia National Labs, he, he thought about this in, in the 50s. And, but he wasn't trying to say, let's wipe it, let's stop it. He, he was more thinking, let's weaken it and maybe and direct it somewhere else. But I can kind of cut some people some slack. You know, if you perhaps if you ne- if you never Googled it, or you didn't like ask your science advisors uh, about it, I could kind of see how you would think that a, a nuke would just break it apart and disband uh, a hurricane. Or if you thought a, a little bit more intelligently about it, I thought well maybe we could uh, mess with the convection cycle. But that assumes you know what convection cycle is. Uh, so, but the bottom line is that the power of a hurricane. The bottom line is that it's just way too powerful for something like even a nuke. To, to do any damage. A hurricane is essentially a country-sized um, heat engine. It's, it's a gargantuan heat engine, and the, the energies in, involved are truly mind-boggling. So you can look at it a lot of different ways. If you look at the kinetic energy of the winds, we're talking 1.5 trillion watts of kinetic energy every day. That's half the electrical generating capacity of the United States. And that's just the winds. If you look at the, the heat released in terms of cloud and rain formation, that's 600 trillion watts of heat energy Every day, that's 200 times the uh, the energy, the electrical generating capacity of of the world. And these numbers are from the Atlantic Ocean Oceanographic and Meteorological Laboratory. And they're, they're probably a few years old, but you get the idea of what we're talking about in terms of what the power that's in that. So if you look at look at it from a nuclear perspective of a nuke, okay, compared to nukes, if you if a good sized hurricane, probably weaker than Dorian, if you wanted to recreate the like the energy profile, you'd have to drop a 10 megaton bomb. How often? Every 20 minutes. Every 20 minutes. Every 20 minutes, a 10, 10 megaton bomb. Wait, to, to duplicate the energy that's, that's, that's happening? Being, that's being released. That's okay. being flung around here and okay. there. So um, that's, that's roughly 666, great number, uh, Hiroshima-type bombs yep. every 20 minutes or 2,000 an hour. So that gives you an idea um, of what we're talking about in terms of, in terms of dropping a nuke. What's a, what's, do you guys know the biggest bomb ever dropped? Biggest bomb ever ever. Was it conventional? Or was it 50 or megatons, a hydrogen bomb, 50 Very megatons? Very good. So the Russians re, uh, dropped uh, Sar Bomba, I think it's called, 50 megaton bomb, biggest one ever dropped, and I hope that we don't even come close to anything Sar-bomba? like that. Sar T-S-A-R-B-O-M-B-A. Sar Bomba. That's what I said. So, uh, so I, mean, I hope we never drop That's anything That's like the like king that. of bombs, right? In right, Russia, the, I guess. It, right, exactly. Um, even that bomb would... Wouldn't do anything to. Well, what would to, it do though? Like I just picture like right. are they thinking they drop it in the center, they drop it inside, you know, like in the middle of the, of the right. circle. Like where? Well, where all right. So if you're thinking of disrupting the, it's not going to blow it apart because there's too much energy. You may think, all right, let's mess with the convection cycle. But the thing is, that's not going to do it. That's not going to do it either. To if you really wanted to mess with a with a hurricane, you would have to increase the air pressure in the middle, right? I mean, it's, it's low pressure there. So you're talking about manhandling a half a billion tons of air, you'd have to migrate that into the middle of the hurricane in order to actually to kind of make the, the pressure 
um, to, to make it this bad. But I know so what how would you even do what it would do. So imagine 180 mile an hour winds. Now make them radioactive. Yeah. That, that's, in, that's exactly it. If you, drop, if you dropped a nuke, you, it might get a little bit bigger, but you, what you would end up with is a radioactive hurricane that would then the trade winds would send the, radi- the fallout all around. And if that got into the stratosphere, we're talking all over the planet, you could have this fallout. So, yeah, it's not a good idea, and I recommend against even thinking about that anymore. So hopefully it won't happen. It's not going to happen. Hopefully it won't happen. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm, right. done, I'm done guessing what's right. going to happen. Hopefully 100,000 people won't storm Area 50 more. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. This is a, a picture of a skull of a, uh, an early hominid. This is Australopithecus anamensis. And you are among the first people to ever look at a full skull of Australopithecus anamensis because this was just recently discovered and presented to the, to the, uh, to the world. Um, this is an early Australopithecus species. So Australopithecus is what came before the genus Homo, right? So we're, we're Homo sapiens. Homo is our genus. Uh, Australopithecus is the, the genus that came before, the, the one that you know, humans are part of. It was, it was considered pretty clear, it, you notice I said was, that Australopithecus afarensis, Lucy, right? Lucy being the most famous example of that. You guys know why it's called Lucy? Mm-hmm. Daughter of the... Uh... It was named after a hurricane. It's the Beatles song. So when they discovered it, they were playing Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Right. Wow, that is cool. That's cool. That's a great idea. So anyway, so Lucy is a a pretty, is like the most complete skeleton we have from from an Australopithecine. Uh, An excellent specimen. And it, it, you know, it's close to the line leading to the Homo genus, right? And of course, whatever was the predecessor to Homo as a genus is, is, a, is a predecessor to humans. And then there's, there's, but there's other Australopithecine species as well. And you know, the, the more fossils we discover, the more complicated this, this branching bush is getting. But we had this like jawbone and a tooth from another Australopithecine species that was older than, than Afarensis, than Lucy. But we, that's it. That's the only specimen we had. Um, and so we didn't know, you know, exactly where it fit into the, the lineage, you know, the, where do we put it on this branching tree. But now we have an almost complete uh, spe- uh, skull from that, that matches that same specimen. So now we, now we know a lot more about Australopithecus anamensis than we did before this specific specimen. In fact, there was another specimen that we had. It was, it was just a bit of skull. And we didn't know, we, what we knew was that it was 3.9 million years old, right? Sometimes if, it, if, a, if a bone is in a well-dated sediment, right? So there, sometimes sediments have like radioactive decay going on. Well, we could say, yeah, this layer right here is 3.8 million years old. Here's the skull. And this layer right here is 3.9 million years old, right? So we have a really good idea how old that skull is. So we had this piece of Australopithecine skull that was 3.9 million years old, but we weren't sure what, what species it was, but we thought it was anamensis. Now that we have a full anamensis skull, we know that it wasn't an anamensis skull. It was Australopithecus afarensis. So the, so the new skull that they found helped them actually accurately identify, identify the piece that they found species, yeah. that, that they could 
tell us was 3.9 million years old. Well, we already knew it was 3.9 million years old, but now what that does is it pushes the age of Afarensis back to 3.9 million years. So, you know, how old is a species? It's as old as the oldest specimen we've found of that species. Have we found the single oldest specimen of that species? Probably not. And so the the age range uh, that, you know, both oldest and youngest of every species is just based upon the oldest and youngest specimens that we found. So those, are all, those you know, limits are always creeping out as we discover new specimens. So now we knocked back the age of, of Australopithecus afarensis. And the, the Anamensis skull that we are looking at, that this complete skull, is 3.8 million years old. Again, very reliably dated in the same way. So in, in a single stroke, this one specimen moved up the youngest age of Anamensis and pushed back the oldest age of Afarensis so that they now overlap by 100,000 years. And so we previously did not know that. We did not know that these two species overlapped. And in fact, this is all happening in Ethiopia. And the thinking was that you know, perhaps Anamensis directly evolved, the, this population of Anamensis we're seeing in Ethiopia evolved into Afarensis in Ethiopia that there was no overlap because A evolved into B. Now there is overlap by at least 100,000 years, which is a long time, although it's kind of nothing geologically, but it is a long time. And right. again, it's at least 100,000. Is it possible? So, they, so mean, that means there's some branching occurred, which, which just complicated our picture of that period of time of human evolution. But don't you think, I mean, you ever think, like, is it possible here that this could actually be a, a cloned alien robot. Cyborg, <laughs> <laughs> Jay, I told Cyborg. you. Cyborg. <laughs> Come on. I was part of that research group. All right. So I have to blow my glasses on this one. <laughs> so the other thing I want to point out about this, um, so it's cool. So it, it basically, it, you know, we, we used to say, yeah, Afarensis probably gave rise to Homo, the genus Homo. Now we're like, now we're not quite so sure. Things got more complicated, not less complicated. So all bets are off because now there's different branching points of, of Australopithecines, and either one of them could have led to our, our genus. Job security for anthropologists. Yeah, well, hey, we're still, we're at that, like Bob and I were talking about this again when we were prepping, and it's like the puzzle piece, like you have a puzzle, but there's no borders to the puzzle, right? It's a borderless puzzle, and you're finding pieces that are fitting in, but every now and then you find a piece that's outside of where you're putting the puzzle. The puzzle just got bigger. So now all, when you find that piece that is outside of what you already know, the, the puzzle itself gets bigger and you actually know less. You actually, when you find something, the known unknowns increase more than the known This knowns. finally makes sense There's to me. Known, this is exactly yeah. like Lost. Are <laughs> <laughs> oh, you totally. saying there are known knowns and known unknowns? And, and, Unknown unknown. Unknown unknown. Right, so this is like we turned an unknown unknown into a known unknown. I knew that. Yes. <laughs> All right. I do want to also point out that the, the lead author on this uh, discovery was, I'm going to butcher this name, we'll do the best I can, Johan Hale Selassie. Um, so he is an Ethiopian, and he is, he's a native to Ethiopia and a professor at the University of Ethiopia. And this is part of, uh, of a trend of you know, local African researchers doing their own research, you know. And the problem was not a lack of researchers or a lack of desire, but a lack of funding. 
Um, African, Native African researchers had a hard time getting funding for their paleontology. So you basically have a bunch of American and English guys doing all the paleontology in Africa. So this is a good trend now that we say, yeah, they're, they're actually you know, trying to get funding to the, the locals to research sort of their own country. You know? So we have Ethiopians doing paleontological research in Ethiopia, which is a, just, which is a nice great. trend. That's yeah. Um, okay, let's move on. I need to answer your question, Jay. It just occurred to me there is an actual cloned alien robot in the room. It's a cloned Australian Cyberman down the back. The Cyberman. Hey. <laughs> hey. <laughs> We've detached him from a lot of his yeah, Cyberman parts <laughs> at this point. So. You, you met David Tennant, didn't you? I saw the picture on Facebook. No that is, that's awesome. <laughs> that, that is awesome, man. <laughs> All right, Jay. The question, one question that often we ask is, for how long have we been screwing up our environment? You know, right. We know we're doing it now, but when did we start doing it? Well, you know, we all think that it started when? In the 50s, the Industrial Revolution, um, when we started to burn fossil fuels. Well, it was like the 1850s. 1850s, yeah. and making cement. Cement is yeah. horrible for the environment. Um, it's a great building material. So there's a new study that explains how humans have been changing the global landscape for thousands of years, and they're saying for, uh, since 1000 BCE, and then this is when people started to abandon foraging, and they started to farm, because farming was predictable, and it actually could feed a lot more people. So there, we have existing estimates today that use calculations that what they do is they try to extrapolate, well, how, much, how many people were alive in, in this block of years, and how much farming would it take in order to feed them? And then they could say, okay, if it would take this much farming, because we knew we were, they were farming then, sorry. If it takes this much farming, then they can calculate how much land that they would have to prepare for farming, which is them changing the landscape, mm-hmm. which, you know, in a lot of ways is bad. Like, with, you're losing the, the Amazon uh, tree, you know, the forest is bad. Mm-hmm. And they're doing it because they want more farmland. So that, they say 500 years, right? That doesn't seem like a long time ago. It really, when I, read, when I was reading this, like that, I would have just thought it was a much longer time ago. Um, but what they decided to do was make a more accurate estimate. So this is what they ended up doing. So Lucas Stevens, who's an archaeologist and environmental researcher at the Environmental Law and Policy Center in Chicago, Illinois, is the lead author that collected and analyzed expert opinions of archaeologists around the world. So here's what they did. The researchers divided the surface of the Earth, excluding Antarctica, into 146 regions, and then 255 archaeologists with expertise in ancient land use mm-hmm. were asked about 80 questions um, in a survey. And they, the survey asked a lot of questions about what were humans doing with the land. And then they said, go back 10,000 years. Yeah. From your ex- and these are experts. Um, and they also asked them, which w- was very important to this study, how confident with error bars are you in the answer, every answer that you give? And as you know, scientists are supposed to be very honest about their error bars. So the, the results were that hunter-gatherer lifestyles declined globally between 10,000 and 3,000 years ago and was replaced with farming, right? So by about 1,000 BCE, all the world's regions were now practicing you know, early farming, but it all included landscaping, mm-hmm. you know, changing the surface of the earth, changing the, the plants that are growing in what places, cutting down a lot of you know, bigger vegetation so they can, have, they can plant right. smaller crop lands. Yeah, basically you take the best land, you cut down the ecosystem, and you plant rows of plants you want to eat. Right. Yeah. So they're saying that they think it could go as far back as 10,000 years yeah. with pretty wow. good error bars, but no matter what, Drop dead it is at least 3,000 years, and, and at that 3,000-year mark, they're saying, and it was significant. Now, nothing compared to the emissions that were being pumped out in the Industrial yeah. Revolution, but it was significant enough to say that we might have to really recalculate 
the, uh, the time frame of the Anthropocene, right? Did I say that correctly? Yeah, Anthropocene, yeah. Right, so that, if you don't know what that is, that's, that is a new era of man where, where, the, where scientists are saying, you know, we are changing the environment so significantly that it's a new era, yeah. right? The era of plastic, the era of, of radiation, you know, like when did the isotopes first, you know, you know the right. man-made isotopes enter uh, the, the rocks around? That could be found a million years from now. Although so, it's still a little controversial, we have to say. Oh, of like, course. The question, like, will, yeah. a, will a... An anthropologist a million years from now know we were here? I, I think that's still an open question. Really? But yeah, but I mean, some are saying, like, yeah, come on, we're, we're a blip. You know, they might not notice. Um, it, it's just because it's such a short period of time. But we are definitely, there's, there's a, there might be a really thin layer where we're changing. Yeah, the, the geological strata. Well, yeah, you're not saying, like, well, people know that we were here. You're saying, well, well from an archaeological standpoint, yeah. will, there, will there be a record? I mean... Yeah, yeah. if we die out in, in a thousand yeah, years, and the then answer... aliens come here and look at the Earth, will they know we were here a million years from now, two, ten million years from now? Whatever. Yeah, they have to find the Statue of Liberty, like, melted <laughs> on the beach. I think they said Mount Rushmore would last, though. Oh, my God, it all makes yeah. sense now. We're going to... This is we're going to blow ourselves up by trying to get rid of a freaking hurricane. <laughs> Damn you! you Damn you to hell! You blew it up. <laughs> you that moment, man, when I first saw that moment in that movie, the maniacs, yeah, and the girl sitting on a horse and she's looking at him like, "What the hell is wrong with this guy?" I remember exactly what I was thinking when I was watching it. That that girl is hot. Yeah, well, we were we were kids. Yeah, she was meant to be. Yeah, was, so that's pre- that's pretty much it. It's a I I find this to be like so impactful though because when you go when it, the the archaeologists went from five hundred years to possibly ten thousand, but let's just you know give you a nice round number. Conservatively three thousand. Three thousand. So and it, it's true. I mean, and this is we're part of nature. This is what we do, right? And right now we're using about thirteen percent of the land on the Earth and all the good land, you know, and basically all of the arable land, you know, to a certain point of quality. Um, we don't, there's not really anything left for us to farm. You know, that's why they're burning down the uh, the Amazon well, that, to, to make more more place to, to plant. Stuff. That's why you know when we talk about GMOs, we're not just talking about like making strawberries taste better. We're talking about although that's a good that's a good use of of course yeah, yeah. I mean, of, of course it is. And you know don't get us into the whole banana hubbub because yeah. we're about to get you know Cavendish are about to go bye bye, which is freaky. Because what the hell am I going to put in my Rice Krispies if we don't have bananas? Um, <laughs> That would be really crappy. Could you so anyway, the, uh, I forgot what I was going to say. Go on. Yeah, okay. That's right. <laughs> um, all right. We're going to have to do a couple of quick hits now on the, re- the rest of the, uh, of the, um, the news items. No, no we're not, just a couple more quick things very, very quickly. So I, I've been asked about this so many times already, I wanted to answer it quickly. There was recently a genome-wide association study, and the headlines are reading there's no gay gene, right? That there's basically no correlation between genetics and being uh, – they, they used same, same-sex behavior. Yeah, was their operational definition here. Um, so even a single encounter was considered same-sex behavior. Uh, and what, so, but the, what they really found was far more nuanced. And in a, in, to some extent, it's not surprising. What they found was that there's a complex interaction between many genes and developmental processes and environment that lead to this complex behavior. Of course that's what it found. But specifically, they could say definitively now, there is no single gay gene, period. But... There are probably hundreds of genes that influence same-sex behavior, but only five that were statistically significant. And what that means is not that the others are are not real. It means we can't be sure, but that just the effects are too small to get to statistical significance with the size of the study that they did. So 
And, and those five genes, this is, again, another important component here, they're for sex hormones, right? So that adds a lot of plausibility to the fact sure. that they're actually related to sexual behavior. So what does this mean? It, the, and the, the fear is immediately, and again, a friend of ours who is gay said, my immediate fear was this is going to be used to attack you know, homosexuality, saying, see, it is a choice. It's, you're not born with it. But that's not what this study shows. This study shows that it's a complex interaction between a lot of genes and development. It doesn't mean it's a choice. It doesn't mean you're not born gay. It means that it's both genetic and epigenetic and developmental. And again, no duh, of course it is. This is what they were expecting to find. That's the way genetics operates. It's a complex interaction among you know, the development and epigenetic factors, etc. There's very few things for which there is a blank gene, right? We've kind of already figured all that. The single gene dominant stuff, we've figured most of that out already. And all the complicated stuff is complicated. That's what this means. Yeah, so don't read the headlines and think, oh, this, there isn't genetics of homosexuality. No, that's not what the study is saying. All right, Bob, you were going to do this, right? Quickly. Pluto, yes. So Pluto. Pluto. So Pluto, is it a planet? It's not a planet. It is a, what's going on? All right, so, Maybe, what's so, the update? Jim Bridenstine, the NASA administrator, said recently in public, just so you know, in my view, Pluto is a planet. It's the way I learned it, and I'm committed to it. <laughs> I mean, so, so sorry. Forget the astronomical, International Astronomical Union. I learned it this way in high school, damn it. Yeah. Now, so, yeah, so, so Steve's right. The, in, the International Astronomy Union, that they decide you know, the definition of a planet. And, they, and over, what, 13 years ago, they said, you've got to be in orbit around the sun, you need to be somewhat spherical because of the amount of mass and gravity, and you've got to clear out your, your orbit to a certain extent. And yeah, that's a little bit problematic, but it makes, it makes a lot of sense because you don't... Otherwise, if, if Pluto remained a planet... And the Kuiper Belt, filled with similar Kuiper Belt objects that's similar in size, some even bigger than Pluto, we would have ended up with, you know, 15, 20, 30, 50, 100 planets in our solar system. And that's kind of crazy, right? You don't want to have that many, that many planets. Well, it really is. So you need, you need a good definition, I, I agree. But, I mean, I think you could make a reasoned argument against for Pluto to be a planet. Like, for example... Alan Stern, he's the guy who, ran, who was in charge of New Horizon, the Pluto mission. He says that, that a planet should be based on geophysical features. And if you, if you do that, if you look at Pluto that way, it's clearly a planet in terms of it has, it has mountain ranges, it has an atmosphere, it has an interior ocean, it has a core, it has a moon. So if you look at these objects in that way, I think you could clearly say, and this is an argument that I think the NASA administrator that's should have moons, made. That's five yeah. moons. Right, that's right. About that, um, <laughs> but that's the kind of reasoned argument that a NASA administrator should make. Not that I learned that in school, and that's why I'm, that's all but I Bob, know. Bob, he's a scientist, right? But no, that, well, Bob, yeah. no, it's, not really. It's so stupid, and I'll say that he's got to be joking. Right? It, was, it was kind of jokey. My, my, take, my sense was that it was a little bit jokey, but still, this is the NASA administration. You shouldn't say you stuff shouldn't like that. You shouldn't be saying stuff like that. You should, yeah. you know, if you really passionately believe that, then, you know, throw a bone to an argument that's somewhat more reasoned than that's what I learned in school. Therefore, it, yeah, I'm not going to change my mind, really. That's the message you're get, giving across here. All right. Whatever. Got it. All right. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, Lisa Mattresses. Guys, you know Lisa, the, the all-foam mattress company we talk about? They, ha- Of course, their mattresses are amazing. I've slept on them many times, and I absolutely, absolutely recommend them. But they also sell other things. They sell the Lisa Hybrid Pillow. It's a hybrid. They sell uh, down pillows. They have mattress protectors. There's lots of other stuff that you can get at lisa.com. And I, you know what, Evan? 
Their their Sapira hybrid mattress it is literally the perfect combination of foam and spring. I'm just saying. And Jay, a really cool thing is that they donate one mattress for every 10 they sell to organizations that work in causes like foster care prevention. And to date, they've donated more than 32,000 mattresses through more than 1,000 nonprofits. Wow. So get 15% off your entire order at lisa.com slash skeptics and use promo code skeptics. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com slash skeptics, promo code skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. Hey, everyone, we're just breaking into our live show at DragonCon to do a couple of extra bits. We're actually back. We're recording this a few days after we got back from DragonCon. Did you guys all have a good time? Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's always fantastic. So it's always fun. a ton of fun. What was the most interesting costume you saw? I saw an Emperor Palpatine that scared both myself and my daughter. That's how good it was. Oh, yeah? And I don't scare easily. <laughs> <laughs> it was all very cool because he was flanked by a bunch of Imperial guards, and they were just maniacally sort of just walking through the crowd, and the crowd parted ways for him. It was that's, it was pretty awesome. impressive. See, I, I, I like costumes that include role-playing you know yeah oh yeah it's always more fun i saw the uh the mayor from the uh nightmare before christmas you know uh (laughs) (laughs) terrible news folks that guy that guy yeah so i was like oh i just loved it like you know seeing something that is one of your favorites you know like just out of the blue yeah. You turn a corner and you're like, oh my God. So I took a picture for Bob because I knew, like, it's very hard. Like, you can't, like, tell someone, hey, go look for the guy in this costume because people wear different costumes all the time. You know, mm-hmm. these pe- a lot of people that frequent Dragon Con have one, two, three, four costumes. I did, you know, the funniest thing I saw while I was with Bob, though, we saw about what, Bob, 30, uh, 30 blow up dinosaurs, you know, like those costumes that you put on and there's a yeah. fan in there that blows yeah. up the costume. And then they all T-Rex, went over yeah. and. We're dancing in front of the DJ, and it was so funny. That was a lot yeah, of fun. Yeah, that was great. It's like a mob. Of I'm still T-Rexes. so tired. What a you know, we're working really hard on on the, the uh, at Dragon Con. And then you know, once all the work is done, we typically have dinner really late because we're working. And then you know, after dinner, you're like, I want to go see some costumes. So you can't help but stay up late because you're just trying to absorb all this. So it takes me days to recover from a good Dragon Con. My favorite costume uh, was a, uh, a like a creepy robot girl from five nights at freddy's game amazing she Uh, i was i i was chatting with her and she won best in show for one of the costume contests i know they have lots of different costume contests for one of them she won that she won best in show she it was wonderful it was a work of art goddamn work of art beautiful yeah the detail was really amazing um so we have an idea for Mm. a costume for next year that we're going to try to get oh yeah as many skeptics attending Dragon Con to help us with this costume. We need your this help. Is, this is not going to just be a costume. This is going to be an event. A performance. <laughs> so, <laughs> a performance. So I'm going to tell you what it is. We're, we're going to do Borg Evangelists. So, well, But Steve, isn't the better idea that you are the evangelist like you are yes. pa- patient number zero, right? Yeah, I'm, yeah so, so then, I'm going to be uh, like like you know, I want to be a, a literal evangelist, but who has been Borgified, and then I'm evangelizing for the Borg, right? Right. So trying to convince people to voluntarily join the collective, but it will be with the personality of an evangelist. And then over the course of the weekend, 
we're going to the the size of the Borg collective will steadily grow throughout the weekend. And we'll have we'll encourage people to bring their own Borg costumes, but we'll have you know Borg things like you could put a sleeve on or a thing on your head or whatever. So you have you could basically add the Borg template to whatever costume or not costume that you're already wearing, and then we'll just see how many people we can get to join the Borg collective over the weekend. <laughs> that will be fun. Yeah, I have been assimilated. I am Borg <laughs> again. <laughs> we're, we're not going to shoot our wad right now. We got. We've been. Oh. Yeah. Once we came up with this idea, we were started to like role play with each other. Like, what would you, how it would go? And it's hilarious. I mean, partly writes itself. But <laughs> we're, we're gonna, Richard Saunders was with us when yeah. we were doing all this, and he came up with, uh, "Do you want peace of mind? You can uh, join the Borg, and you can have peace of minds. Many minds. <laughs> Many minds. Yeah. Um, but we have we." What we think, though, would be fun is, like Steve was saying, like, Bob, you and I talked about this, that it could be a Borg mashup with any costume that you would wear at Dragon Con. So all you'd need is, like, one tube coming out of your neck and, you know, a Borg hand, as an example. And then you're good enough, you know, because you're not fully Borg. Assimilation has begun. Yeah, there you go. The assimilation process has begun. Exactly. So it'll be us – Plus as many of our fellow skeptics as possible, and then if we, the hope is that if we reach critical mass, then we want to get just anybody at DragonCon to join us. You know, just put on, you know, the, put on this Borg element, and now you're part of the Borg collective. Again, as yeah, get to, they could add it on over whatever costume they're already wearing. But the the funniest bit that we came up with was that Steve goes out on Thursday night as a, a loner. Well, I think I should. Just, I think even at the first night, I should have one guy with me. Yeah, I mean, yeah, right, you have yeah. one dude that you've you've assimilated. Then Friday night there's four or five assimilations. Then Saturday night there's 10 right. or 15 mm-hmm. and then Sunday night if we could pull it off like if we can get 30 people to roll around. And at that point we're waving like big picket signs yeah. and you know just going nuts. Like yeah. I think we, it could be a lot of put, fun. We could put so, signs up. We should put signs oh, up yeah. all around. Locutus 314. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Nice. So if you're and, uh, interested, email us at info@theskepticsguide.org at with the subject Borg B O R G. Yeah, we'll and just say, that. "Hey, I'm in." And then what we'll do is we'll put you on like a a, a small little mail, you know, email group. Where we'll say, hey, here's some, you know, and then we could start hunting for Borg costume ideas together. You know, hey, I found this cool Borg thing, a glove, or, you know, the tubing you could get at Home Depot, whatever. We could just, like, coach each other on how to make these impromptu Borg costumes. Yeah, plus we'll have a year. And so, you know, we know we have some listeners out there, but, like, if you have a 3D printer that's doing nothing, you want to make some Borg components for us, this is part of the idea here is that we'll have a whole year to prep this, to put together the costumes, you know, not just for us, but for everyone that we assimilate. Yep. And I want to tell everyone mm. a cool, like the coolest thing that happened to me at Dragon Con this year was we met a listener named James. James started listening to the SGU when he was 12, which was 13 years ago. And now he's 25, yeah. Yep. Wow. So he introduced himself to us and I was blown away. I was totally blown away because, you know, we've talked to 12-year-old, you know, or emailed 12-year-old people um who were listeners of the show and you know it goes back a long ways you know and i'm like wow he you know he was one of those people that found us when he was young and he's all grown up you know what i mean yeah like it's funny i had him stand up at our live show which you'll hear us you'll hear it in this show i'll introduce him because they already have okay yeah but just it's just funny to be talking to an adult who says i've been listening to your show since i was 12 
Yeah. You know? We scolded him. Why not 11? <laughs> and James was super cool. Like he was just a, you know, exactly what you'd want the person to turn out to be that has been listening to you for his entire adult life. So James, thanks a lot, man. What a memory and what a cool thing to have happened to all of us that, you know, you've been listening that long and uh, we'll see you at DragonCon. He's going to go next year. He's already looking forward to seeing us again. Awesome. So we earlier in this show, we talked about Hurricane Dorian and it's still going strong as of you know Wednesday, September 4th, when we're recording this extra bit. So I wanted to just give some updated stats. Uh, it is one of the biggest uh, hurricanes to hit the Atlantic. It's tied with second uh, for just all Atlantic storms uh, with wind speeds up to 185 miles per hour. It is the strongest hurricane that's both east of Florida and north of the Caribbean. And it's also the the strongest storm to make landfall and the strongest storm to hit the Bahamas. Um, Yeah. So uh, very, very powerful. It unfortunately devastated the Bahamas. Um, I think that as of this recording, the death toll is 20, but they're sure it's going to climb. And now it's sort of slowly making its way up Florida and then – Georgia and and the Carolinas and that that's a problem the slowness is bad because the, the longer it lingers the more water it drops i remember the the real damaging thing from hurricanes the winds are bad but the the water does more damage yeah water and, kills you know, yeah the the water surges are bad and just the rain is bad if the if the storm lingers and drops a ton of it which is what's happening um so we'll continue to track it and you know, we have to mention also that while you cannot know that any one individual storm is is due to global warming, but powerful storms like Category 4 and 5 hurricanes are twice as likely now as they were 30 years ago. So statistically, we're seeing more of these really powerful storms. And so, it's, you know, Again, we don't know if Dorian would have happened without it, but we're, there's more Dorians than there would have been. If the oceans weren't warmer, you know, and had more energy in them. So the the hurricane looks like uh, from the latest uh, path projection that once it, it it's going to make land in North Carolina, I think South and North Carolina, and then it's going to go out to sea. Mm-hmm. That's what we're hoping. That's well, yeah, but when it goes it, out to sea, it, it builds up more strength, though. Yeah, that's true. It loses strength when it hits the land, and then if it, and it gains strength as it goes back out to sea. If it keeps going out, yeah. What we don't want it to do is to go out, gain power, and then come back in, right? Yep, that's true. Yeah. And as of right now, it does not look like it's going to hit Alabama. Are you sure about that, I just Steve? thought I, I'd I, point I read, that I out. I read something where – Yeah. Okay. No. All right. And and how about Montana? Is Montana yeah. safe? Montana, I think, is pretty, pretty oh, safe. Thank goodness. But you, you never know. Well, you never know. What you're <laughs> <read>. <laughs> Spot the joke. Spot the joke, folks. All right, Jay, you're going to do a "Who's That Noisy" before we uh, return to our live show. Uh, we just have science or fiction left. Of course, we all know what happened. It'll be interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but before we get back to the live show and finish up with science or fiction, Jay, get us up to date on "Who's That Noisy." All right, guys. Last week I played this noisy. Sounds recognizable, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a well, Cylon. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. It's Thomas, the the, the train from everyone's youth, right? That remarkably uh, correct, Evan. Like you've got your onto something there. 
So let me uh, let me go through what the what listeners sent in. So Jim Kelly wrote in, "Hi, I think this week's noisy was made by outputting audio from a computer through a Tesla coil." Uh, no, that is not correct, but it does sound like I'd like to hear a human voice through a Tesla coil. So if you find something like that, send it to me. Uh, Visto Tutti said, uh, "This week's noisy sounds like a train conductor using what Dr. Seuss described as a whisper maphone. This is where a snurgle uh, <laughs> hose carries the sound of a human voice over some distance to a remote listener." I think the maritime term is speaking to, but this noisy was clearly train-based. That's not correct, although anything to do with Dr. Seuss is correct. So you are a sub-winner for this week regardless. So the winner for this week, though, was Rich Regalado. Uh, you may have recognized Rich name, Rich's name because he's submitted before many times. Rich said, I believe this week's noisy was recorded using a Sonovox. This mm-hmm. is a device that was invented by Gilbert Wright in 1939 and preceded the talk box used by Peter Frampton on his song, Do You Feel Like We Do. The Sonovox yeah. used small loudspeakers attached to the performer's throat and would act as a larynx, sending the sound to be amplified by an instrument or synthesizer. The Who used the Sonovox on their original recording of Radio London 1967. So I've heard different explanations of how this works. But essentially, from my understanding, is it was two speakers that you put up against your throat. And without talking, you just mouth the words. Mm-hmm. And then your vocal cords help shape the sound. And your vo- your throat and larynx amplify it, in a sense. And then it, it, the noise does come out of your mouth with the shape of words. So... It's really cool. I would love to try it out myself. Um, but I do have a cool, a couple of cool recordings for you. So one, I will play the, uh, the sound again so you can hear it now that you know what it is. And to be clear, so people who had their larynx removed use that to communicate. Right. And here it is. Okay, now, Peter Frampton was was mentioned here. Peter Frampton was using something called a talk box. And the talk box is like, you know, you may have heard this more recently, even though this was a very long time ago anyway, but more recent than Peter Frampton. So you may have heard a Bon Jovi song where they use this, this talk box. It's when you see a guitarist with a, or it could even be a keyboard player, and they have a, a tube going into their mouth. They're using the shape of their mouth to shape the sound yeah. because they, it can read the pressure change. So here's Peter Frampton doing it better than anybody, anyone. And this is the song, uh, Do You Feel Like I Do? Mm-hmm. This is wonderful. Check this out. Oh, that live version of that song, I must have listened to it hundreds of times. It's so awesome. Um, but there's other places that we hear this type of voice manipulation. So I want to play something for you guys and see if you can guess what movie it's from. You guys recognize that? It sounds like Directed. Eve from Wall. Star Wars. It, Star it is. Wars? It is. Well, yeah. Um, well, Bob, it's very astute of you to tie that back to Star Wars because Ben Burt uh, created those sounds. Oh, and, okay, mm-hmm. cool. Makes sense. Yeah, and um, that is done with a, a vocal, uh, a similar thing to what the talk box. 
But of course, Ben is also adding in more effects and doing, you know, I saw a video on it. It's so fascinating. You really should take a look if you're interested. You can find it very easily on YouTube. How incredible that techniques that were developed, you know, in the 50s, you know, still have relevance today in our movies or, you know, at least things that were, were created after them that were derivative of them. You know, the technology that we use today, a lot of a lot of cool things like this are, are still important, that are still being used by musicians and sound engineers and people that create sounds for movies. I love all of that. And that's probably why I love this segment so much. I was always – I loved when Evan had this segment because it was fun to guess. Mm-hmm. I loved guessing. And then when Steve suggested I take it over, I was almost intimidated because I'm like, can I do this justice? You know, but I just love – Anything to do with sounds like, you know, created sounds or manipulated sound or, you know, trying to figure out what something is. It's yep. very cool. And enough examples uh, to last a lifetime. Yeah, there really is. I mean, it, I, I, uh, I don't think I'll ever see the end, especially with you listeners helping me by sending the sounds that you heard, oh, I don't know, this past week to WTN at theskepticsguide.org. Please do it because I will definitely read your email. I respond to some people uh, just depending on how much time I have. And on that note... I have a new noisy for this week. Ready? Here it is. Hmm. Interesting. (laughs) If you think you know what it is, email me at WTN at theskepticsguy.org. Sounds like the mothership. All right. Thank you, Jay. So, guys, mm, Steve. Yep. we will be in Christchurch, New Zealand from November 29th to December 1st. The SGU is going to be, of course, doing a live show. We'll be giving some individual lectures and we'll be doing a private recording, which are always a ton of fun, Friday from four to six. Jay, you're going to be setting up tickets for that soon. We'll let you know as soon as those become available. Right. And so let me make it easy for everyone. This is super easy. Yeah. Go to theskepticsguide.org. Go to the homepage. Scroll all the way down or click the events link. But if you scroll down, you'll find our events at the very bottom, almost at the bottom of the page. And you'll see a, a link for the New Zealand event show in, in 2019. And then you'll see another link for the Skepticon which is a Skepticon event show, which is in Melbourne. Um, just click those. You'll be brought to a page that has everything on it, the whole schedule, links on where to buy tickets. And um, I, I really do need to get up those private shows this week. So probably by the time you see this, uh, links for the, for the private show registration will be up. Mm-hmm. Now, I yep. might not have all the details, but I will have the dates of those private shows. So if, you, you know, if you're seeing like it's going to be in Melbourne – um, but I don't have the location yet. Don't worry about it. It's going to be accessible. It'll probably be you know near the the main event anyway. So if you want to buy your tickets early, I'll put up as much information as I have. But you know we we are still planning all the details out for these shows. Yeah. So the Melbourne one that's December sixth to eighth in uh, in Melbourne, and actually the Thursday, December fifth, they're having a Skeptics Trivia Night. So if you're there a day early, there will there will still be will be there all all week. Uh, well, from Wednesday on, at least. Evan, you'll be there all week. The rest of us will be joining you on Wednesday. Yes. Hanging out, doing fun stuff. Uh, that So that conference is going to be a lot of fun, too. And if you're going and you would like us to sign your book, feel free to bring it. So we're going to – we are trying – as we I think we mentioned, our the soft cover of our book is coming out in October. 
So it'll be out by both of these conferences. And uh, I am trying to arrange with our UK publisher, because that those are the ones who distribute in New Zealand and Australia, to uh, to be selling our book there. I think that we should be able to work that out, but I don't have 100% confirmation from them yet. Uh, but we'll work something out one way or the other. And and if you already have the book, we'll be there to sign it. Uh, at both conferences, we'll put some time aside to have a book signing. All right, guys. Thanks for joining me for this second little bit that we did. Uh, we're going to now go back to our live show at DragonCon. Uh, we'll see how everyone did with science or fiction. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, KiwiCo. Guys, KiwiCo creates these super cool hands-on projects that make learning about science a ton of fun. What I recommend is that you go to the KiwiCo.com website because you can pick out the age range of your child or you know your, your niece or nephew. I'm looking at one right now that is a, it's a superhero red cape that you build with, with the kid. And it's so cool because first of all, you know, I remember using a towel as a freaking cape when I was a kid, you know, big, <laughs> big, really big pin that my mom had, safety pin. It was gigantic. And I strapped that thing on me. You could actually give them a, a cape that they made, handmade. I think it's wonderful. Another cool thing that they have here is a hydraulic claw that you could teach, you could teach someone about how hydraulics work and the claw actually works. This is so cool. Just go in there to their website, pick the age range and the, just browse through all the different projects. I'm sure you could find someone a birthday present or just, just a, a, a gift of knowledge. Every crate includes all the supplies needed for that month's project. Detailed, easy to follow instructions and an educational magazine to learn even more about the crate's theme. KiwiCo inspires kids to see themselves as makers and is on a mission to empower kids not just to make a project, but to make a difference. Right now, KiwiCo is offering the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe listeners the chance to try them for free. To redeem this offer and learn more about their projects for kids of all ages, visit KiwiCo.com skeptics. That's K-I-W-I-C-O dot com slash skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. It's time for Science or Fiction. Yes, here we are. Science or Fiction. Guys, you've all been waiting for this. Steve, you have 12 minutes. Yes, I know. So, three items, two real, one fake, and there is a theme. And the theme this week, I'm actually recycling a theme that I've used at a previous Dragon Con. The theme is dragons. These are real-life dragons. Are you guys ready? All right. We'll pull the audience beforehand, so think of your answer. Don't shout anything out. All right. Number one, the pink dragon millipede spits flammable liquid onto its prey, which in the hot sun may actually combust. Item number two, the ruby sea dragon uses its bright red color as camouflage. And item number three, the blue dragon sea slug spends most of its life floating upside down on the ocean surface. It feeds on Portuguese man-o'-wars and steals their venom for their own defense. Now, I have one comment about this. Shouldn't it be Portuguese men-o'-wars? Yes, I was just thinking that. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> but apparently it's correct to say Portuguese man-o'-wars... That's like, is it Jack in the Pulpits or Jackson the Single Pulpit? I don't know. Um, okay. Sisters-in-law. So, 
Sister in... Well, that's easy. All right. So if you think the fire-breathing pink dragon millipede is the fiction, we're going to do the single clap method. When I do this, when I get to here, you're going to clap. We'll practice. Ready? All right. If you think the pink dragon millipede is the fiction, clap. If you think that the ruby sea dragon is the fiction, clap. And if you think that the blue dragon sea slug is the fiction, clap. Wow. Okay, so one and then two and three kind of tied, yes. it right. sounds like to right. me. So they don't believe in the fire breathing dragon millipede. We will see. We're going to start over here yes. at Richard, who swept us all last night in his Australian version of science or fiction. <laughs> but you get to go first. So reason your way through it, brother. I, well, I'll come straight out with it. I think number one is the fiction. Namely... Millipede. The millipede, mainly because the other two kind of sort of kind of make sense. Now, I don't know much about undersea camouflage. So, yeah, why not a red color being compatible with some undersea environment? And the venom stealing. Now, there's a lot of weird stuff going on in nature. You know, there's wasps, I think, that lay their eggs in other creatures and control them, and zombie ants, so why not venom stealing? So from that point of view, I'll go with number one being the fiction. Okay, the millipede. Millipede. Yes, Evan. I'll go with the uh, ruby red sea dragon as the fiction. My reasoning behind that is that it's probably not using it as camouflage, but um, rather uh, to find mates, you know, to attract uh, others of its kind. And the brighter you are, the more attractive apparently you are. I thought you were going to say because the red shirts always got shot first. (laughs) (laughs) Not all red shirts get shot first. (laughs) All right, red shirt number two. Well, <laughs> now Scotty wore a red shirt, and he True. never got killed. He, that's because he stayed in engineering. Right. So anyway, I'm one of those guys. But he, but he is dead. <laughs> what did you say, laddie? So um, I, I, I think the, the red guys, I, all they need to, do, to be is around things that are red, and that makes sense. It's not that big of a deal. Um, you know, there's probably like red creatures or plant life that they're hiding amongst. No big deal. So that one is definitely not it. The one where the guy lying, like, be, mo- spending most of his time on his back and stealing venom, I love that guy. I mean, like, I like to think of him as just like he's lounging and he's like, he doesn't make his own venom. He steals it from, from Men of Wars. Men of, men, man of Works? Men of Wars. Men of Wars. Men of Works. I'm like, what am I doing? Men of Works. Yeah, I think I'm going to go with Richard and the audience and say that the first one in my reasoning is that and I, this is really my answer. If there was anything that was like had the name dragon in it that spit out something that caught on fire, we would know about it. <laughs> All right, and Bob. So the, the stealing venom, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, for, that's, that's number three. Uh, number two, uh, the color, the, re, the red fish. Could I ask you what depth it lives uh, don't answer that. That's cheating, I and I, I would have that. that. No, I, I don't need it. I don't need it. I know why. Know why he's asking that, and you can't get. I will that adhere answer. to Jay's objection. He has no idea why I'm asking. I know exactly why you're asking that. <laughs> All right. What do you got? Because because um, the color red does not appear at, at a certain depth because of the the light spectrum. I saw that that wow. study done. All right, Bob, you <laughs> underestimated Jay. Good job. Awesome, Jay. <laughs> Don't leave me hanging. Don't leave me hanging. You, you actually went, wow, Jay's not stupid, right, audience? <laughs> Jay. Fair cop, fair cop. Just go on. <laughs> no, it's somewhat obscure, and I'm, I'm proud that you, that you know that. Uh, now the word proud comes out. It's always, oh, no, I was proud of you. I'm proud of you. Okay. I love you too, Bob. 
Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, so, yeah. Red, it seems counterintuitive, but if you're at the right depth, the red kind of dis- the bright colors disappear. A lot of a lot of fish are are very bright if you look at them, but they actually is a form of camouflage. So I'm going to go with that, uh, so and say that that's not fiction. So the first one w- was yeah. Some liquid combusting in, in oh oh it's ninety degrees. This is going to catch on fire. I, I don't think that's yeah, that very. Safe. I'm not buying it. So fiction. <laughs> Should we pull the all? Yes, how you course, think? All right. If you think the pink, the pink dragon millipede that breathes this fire sort of is the fiction clap. If you think that the ruby sea dragon is the fiction clap. <laughs> <laughs> I saw you. You clapped. You literally went. You went. <laughs> you are. If you think the blue dragon sea slug is the fiction clap. All right, before All right. you continue. Yes. I want to share one of the coolest things that happened with Dragon Con this weekend. Yeah. A person in this audience who is no longer a child has been listening to us since they are 12. Since they are 12. Stand, James, just stand up and show them that you're a man now. James was 12 when he started listening to us and I told him yesterday I'm kind of like your dad (laughs) (laughs) you're you're his podcast dad that's the scariest thought he is the scariest (laughs) thing he's heard all right all right so, you guys seem pretty confident. Um, we'll start with the, the blue dragon. Sea slug spends most of its life floating upside down on the ocean surface, feeds off Portuguese men of wars, and steals their venom for its own defense. Everyone on the panel thinks that one is science. The vast majority of the audience thinks that one is science. And that one is science. Uh, and, oops, there it is. Isn't that beautiful? That is a blue dragon sea slug. It, it, you hear sea slug, and you don't think you're going to see something gorgeous, right? But that is a gorgeous animal. You know, Steve, if they captured like 100 of them and threw them all around Area 51... <laughs> oh, my God! I knew it! I knew it! I saw that picture. I'm like, that thing exists on Earth, and I didn't know about it? You know, it's really a beautiful, beautiful animal. So look it up at podcast listeners at home. Um, the, the, sea, the blue sea slug. Uh, very, very pretty. Yeah, it, and so it floats on its back, and it, it feeds on man of wars. That's the thing that's, I thought was really interesting. And, um, yeah, so stealing venom is a common thing to happen in the ocean. Wow. Um, animals steal. They steal venom. They steal um, the, the glowing stuff, like the, the, yeah. the, luminescent, bioluminescence. Material, the bioluminescence. They steal that from other creatures. They steal genes for, for their immune system from other creatures. Oh. They're like, stealing all kinds like of stuff. Not the gauge. Yeah. They're all, um, they're all thieves. All right, so let's go back to number two. The ruby sea dragon uses its bright red color as camouflage. Evan, you think this one is the fiction. Like three people in the audience think this one is the fiction. And this one is science. Yes. Oh. Yes. yes. Yeah, me going right to the end. There, there it is. Very, very pretty. Very bright red ruby sea dragon. And Bob and Jay are absolutely correct. It's a deep sea creature, and red gets filtered out by that depth. So there is no red light at that depth. And therefore, this creature is totally black at at depth. Um, See, I thought it was red the whole time. I thought it was red, that it lived in the shallows because it was blending in with, like... No, but Bob was right. It's because it's at depth. Because there's no red light to reflect off of (laughs) it. Respect, man. Respect. Respect. All right. You're mostly right. All of this means that... 
The pink dragon millipede spits flammable liquid onto its prey, which is the, in the hot sun may actually combust, is the fiction. Congratulations to the audience. Good job. Good job. I mean, I had to see if I could get you with a fire-breathing dragon, yeah. right? And that was the most plausible way I thought to, to state it. Okay, it's not fire, but it's like, yeah, it's a flammable liquid and in the desert in Australia or something. It's, it's got to be in Australia, right? Um, it, it combusts and it so there it is. That It does exist. And, it, and what it, does, it spits, though, it doesn't spit, you know, combustible liquid. It spits cyanide, right? So oh, it does spit. Bad. Yeah, that's pretty uh, bad. Steve, <laughs> all kidding aside, that thing looks unbelievably made out of plastic. Yeah, but no, yeah. But it's it's, because it's red. It's yeah, it's very, very brightly colored. Again, also very pretty in a different sort of way yeah. than the other creatures, but very, very nice. Um, so good job, everyone. Evan, we have just enough time for you to take us home with a quote. Less even, than a <laughs> even the most outspoken of the critics must admit that long before we had print and film media to spread the word, mankind was engaged in all forms of cruel and despicable behavior. To attribute war, killing, and violence to film, TV, and role-playing games is to fly in the face of thousands of years of recorded history. Gary Gygax. Yes. (laughs) And if I have to tell you who Gary Gygax is, there's the exit. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, come on. You know, this is the whole video games are making people go on shooting sprees. No, that's that's not what's happening. And that's a good point. You know, these violence occurred long before there were video games or Dungeons and Dragons even though Gary Gygax might have a personal reason for making that observation. All right, so this was a lot of fun. We hope you guys enjoyed this show. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you all for joining me this week. Thank you, Steve. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information, visit us at theskepticsguide.org. Send your questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. And if you would like to support the show and all the work that we do, go to patreon.com slash skepticsguide and consider becoming a patron and becoming part of the SGU community. Our listeners and supporters are what make SGU possible. And don't forget about KiwiCo. KiwiCo projects are designed to spark creativity, tinkering, and learning in kids of all ages. They make learning about science, technology, engineering, arts, and math fun. They're on a mission to empower kids not just to make a project, but to make a difference. Kibico is offering the Skeptics Guide listeners the chance to try them for free. To redeem this offer and learn more about their projects for kids of all ages, visit kiwico.com slash skeptics.